That last line of the gospel is sometimes intimidating, right? Be perfect just as your heavenly Father is perfect. We, we hear that and we're like, how's that going to work, Jesus? Right? Uh, especially because, you know, the very fact that he's acknowledging that, you know, they had a hard time even living the, the earlier commandments. You know, just, you know, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And now we're going to have to do more, right? You're going to have to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Right? You're going you're gonna to go that extra mile, turn that other cheek, right? As we heard yesterday, we're not, you know, we're not only going to not kill somebody, we're not going to, you know, talk bad about them and call them, you fool. You know, all these sort of things sit there. Part of that is that in the English language, perfect has drifted as a word, right? This is always the problem with all sorts of words, um, both in our language and other languages, is that they drift over time. Uh, and so uh, they, that, that means that sometimes they hit us in, in different ways, right? So we hear perfect and we mean flawless, immaculate, 100% done, A+, plus, no flaws ever, etc., right? Um, which, of course, like, well, we're humans, so that's not going to happen, Jesus, right? But the, the word perfect, both uh, originally in English and then in Latin and Greek before it, perfectus, the Latin root, means um, completed, right? So notice there's a whole difference between I got my homework completed and I got my homework perfect, right? Because in the last, you know, 600 years, in English, it's drift, drifted from its just original Latin meaning to, you know, we now say it's flawless, right? So what, what, we're under, what we should understand that as is that we, we are called to strive and we're called to be, uh, you know, acting complete. What kind of complete? Put in the context. This is a good example of using that context thing, right? That, you know, he's saying, what does the Father do who you're supposed to be following? The Father makes the rain fall on the just and the unjust, right? The Father makes the sun shine on the good and the bad. So he's saying, be complete in your loving the way the Father is complete in his loving, right? I mean, the Father is way more aware of our faults and failings, other people's faults and failings, our enemies' faults and failings, right? And yet he still comes to them with loving hearts, just as he does to us, right? And so he's saying, like, yeah, you know, if you only love those who love you, tax collectors do the same. That's not impressive, right? Compare that to your father who loves everyone, right? You greet your brothers and sisters only. What's special about that? The pagans do that. That's not how your father would do it, right? And we understand that what Jesus says here is what he's enacting when he eats with sinners, when he calls Matthew, when he calls Zacchaeus, when he's doing all those things. He's showing us a complete way to love, a finished way to love, a filled-in-all-the-gaps way to love, not a picky, choosy sort of way to love. And you can run that through with all sorts of things that Jesus says, right? That when we look at, you know, the other commands that Jesus asks, those are hard. We're saying, because he's showing us what a full, complete version of love looks like, a full, complete version of mercy looks like, a complete version of even justice. Justice is hard because we assume that means, you know, always, you know, calling out the bad guys and stuff like that. But sometimes justice also means recognizing, yeah, that person has faults and failings, and I'm aware of those, so in justice, you know, I, I look at them, you know, and, and take that into account. It's weird. Mercy is, in a certain way, a kind of justice, and justice contains that dose of mercy. So I think that helps us when we look at that context, because, again, if you took a line by itself, be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect, well, then we would just have to give up because we could say we never do it. But in context, we see it's this comparison with the Father, and we actually see what his love looks like. That makes a difference. And, of course, the fascinating thing is that God, fully aware of our flaws, 
wanted not merely to just not strike us down and maybe forgive us, but he wants to come and be with us, right? You know, we have this cool little progression in this chapel, right? The word, right? And then the word made flesh and then dwelt among us. That line, dwelt among us, in the original Greek means set up his tent among us, right? He set up his tent way back in uh, the Pentateuch. That was the first reading, Deuteronomy, right? Earlier in the Pentateuch, in Exodus, God dwells among his people, right? First in pillar of cloud, pillar of fire, and then that glory enters into the temple, or into the, the tabernacle, the old tent in the wilderness. That Glory comes into the temple until it's destroyed during those sad days of Babylon exile. And when Jesus comes back, we're told that he is coming to make his tent among us, to make his habitation among us, to dwell among us. And actually, all the Gospels say that. John says it in that way. Matthew says it before he leaves. I am with you always until the end of the age, right? Each of the apostles in their own way tell us that. We talked about Luke last night, breaking the bread, and he's with us there, right? All the Gospels are telling us that what God wanted from all along is to be with us and dwell with us. And that's, that was the whole, the, the whole point all along. So today, as we receive this Eucharist, let's say, okay, now I get to be a dwelling place. Now I get to, to be what God intended, and this will help me to be perfect, that my Father is perfect, completed, and filled with his love.